Ladies and gentlemen, live on stage, I bring you Eternal Defiance! <laughs> <laughs> Got a flashback, then. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 27 of the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brading and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Ducklin. Hello. Matt Boddy. Guten Tag. Belt. And Ben Jones. Hello. Hello everyone. Coming up on today's show, Matt talks honeypots, Duck talks GPS and Ben tells us what we can learn from MySpace's big data loss. What have you been up to this week, guys? We're, we're going to be talking about it in this week's podcast, so I won't go on too much. But I, I, I set up some honeypots, did some stuff... And you're going to hear all about it today. Exciting. Yeah. And you presented your research last week? I presented it last week at IP Expo in Manchester and it, it went down quite well. Had some good comments. Yeah. I also went to IP Expo with Matt. We actually shared a lift up. Yeah. So I got oh. to spend a good few hours in the car listening actually, to Matt talk about honeypots. Yeah. Doing some jokes. It was great. Doing yeah. some jokes. Oh. Yeah. There was a lot of buzz in the car. Oh. Um, we <laughs> actually. <laughs> Doug, what have you been doing? I had something really, really interesting and important to say, and then I forgot what it was, which proves how important it was. Okay, back to cybersecurity chat. Matt, you spoke a while ago about the honeypots you'd set up, and now the report's been published, as you said. I am buzzing. I'm sorry oh. that. Insert can laughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's start at the beginning. What did you set up? So I set up... 10 honeypots in 10 locations around the world spanning five different continents. And uh, and the aim of this was just to gather the number of login attempts you get on a sort of daily basis, on an hourly basis to your devices via SSH. So I was focusing on having a honeypot where the, the attacker wouldn't get into the device. They wouldn't start messing about inside of the device, like having full shell access to it, for instance. I gathered uh, the, the number of login attempts, what usernames and passwords were attempted on those devices, how often, how consistent those login attempts were. And then, so how long until the first login attempt? Sao Paulo, the first login attempt happened within 52 seconds. Whereas in Ireland, the first login attempt, Ireland was the slowest to get a login attempt. And that was within an hour and 44 minutes and 59 seconds. <laughs> sort of cold comfort, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you've got a whole two hours if you're in the Irish data centre yeah. before someone wants to come wandering in. Yeah, and that's a good point, actually, because people have been asking me, have they said, well, does that mean if I leave my device online for longer in Ireland, I'm more secure than if I'm in Sao Paulo? Will I get logged into straight away? And the answer is categorically no. You're not safer regardless mm. of where you happen to be in the world. And you could have, that could have just been statistically random, right? But the next time, because you, you can only start your whole experiment once. Yeah. It could have been the other way around. It, and even yeah. so, one minute's quick, yeah. but it's not as though two hours is a lifetime. No exactly. one's really spinning up a service for two hours, are they? Precisely. So, so actually, actually, these what, what this showed us is that you're not really safe regardless of where you are in the world. Sao Paulo was an unfortunate device because it happened to be spun up and then a script managed to find it, discover SSH was enabled, and then attempt to log in within that 52-second period. Ireland was much more fortunate in the fact that my honeypot spent an hour and 44 minutes and 59 seconds before that script had managed to um, serve its purpose and try and log into that device. So do you think it was actually the same guy, the same internet scan in that case, or is it just... 
two or n scans that just happen to cross over i'd say it's n number of scans it could be a huge huge number of people doing it or it could be a handful of people that have managed to infiltrate a whole load of devices that have then managed to start to log into lots of devices online did they come from any particular place or was it just pretty widespread it was pretty widespread although that being said around 95 percent of these attempts uh were coming from coming from China, 95.4% of the attempts, to be precise, were coming from Chinese IP addresses. However, I don't think that goes to say that uh, the login attempts were actually coming from China itself. Because what could happen here is that Chinese devices could have been infiltrated and they were themselves then, once infiltrated by an attacker, being used to then try and log in to other devices. So the way in which the cyber criminal has acquired those IP addresses um, I, I wasn't able to find out. But you kind of expect in any survey like this, you'd expect countries like China to come out at the top simply for population reasons. You'd yeah. expect the US to come out near the top simply because they have absolutely loads of internet bandwidth. They've been doing yeah. it for longer. So that's hardly unexpected, is it? And it doesn't really matter where it comes from because that may or may not be the origin. There was around 13 login attempts per minute onto each device. So On a average, device is a... Amazon server locked down to a particular Amazon geographic location. Yeah. So, so what I haven't mentioned yet is that this was all based on Amazon Web Services. Right. So the honeypots which I spun up, I spun them up on Amazon Web Services. Just standard Ubuntu um, boxes that I spun up and then installed a honeypot service called Cowrie. Open source tool, really cool. I highly recommend checking it out. And so the attackers try and log in. Did you see any uh, interesting username and password combinations? 5.2 million out of the 5.4 million or so uh, login attempts were as root. So that kind of shows that, that actually Linux devices are being targeted with, with uh, SSH login attempts. Uh, and, uh, and it's no real surprise because that's the way that you'd administer the Linux devices is via SSH. And root is the administrative user available on the majority of Linux devices. Yeah, I presume that the reason that they're trying root, which on many, even moderately well-administered servers, either a root login won't be possible or root login, the, the default open SSH setting, if you're using that, would be not to allow root logins anyway over SSH. But I'd imagine that the reason that crooks find this works is that you may not have the same lockdown on IoT devices, like yeah. routers and such. So talking of IoT devices, I actually found that root was the default username on Seagate and Synology NAS devices, followed not very closely at all with 47,816 login attempts as admin. Which is thought? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And that is the default username for ACTI, CCTV devices, Asoni, AV Tech, uh, Basler, sorry. I'm going to pronounce loads of these wrong. And then the third place, we've got user, which is on loads of IoT devices as well. You've got UBNT, which is the Ubiquity Network's default username. You've got Ubuntu, which is the default username for Ubuntu devices on AWS instances when you spin them up. So automatically, it will create you a Ubuntu user. However, it will automatically also tell you to use um, to use key-based authentication and not just a password. So you do have to go out of your way to have just password-based authentication on AWS. Then it's followed by Nagios, which is an SNMP monitor, followed by Pi, obviously the <laughs> default <laughs> username for Raspbian, Raspbian, the popular operating system for Raspberry Pi. Uh, you've then got Postgres. 
So why do you think we're seeing so many default usernames and passwords being used? Uh, well, I think it's because it's the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. So you also have passwords like 123456 being the top password globally that's being attempted. Admin1234, password1234, UBNT, Ubiquity Networks again, root123, blank, and raspberry. So these are all default passwords, once again, like you said, and default usernames that are being attempted on these devices. And it's quite likely because those devices, when they come up, the moment they come up, what Ben spoke about two weeks ago, I think now, on the podcast was about UPnP. UPnP will take your device and it will create a port forwarding rule to then suggest that that device should be externally accessible from the internet. So you haven't clicked on a link, you've not browsed to any dodgy websites, but you've bought a fancy new NAS and you plugged it in, you've gone out to dinner, you've come back, then you've changed the default password. Within that time period of what, two, three, four hours, your your device could have already been owned by someone and it could be in, instrumental in, in being part of a botnet. So if they so if they compromise a the device, then what what could happen? I spun up one high interaction honeypot to collect the data of what they would do if they got into the device. They went for large banks and large retail outfits in the US from my device. So they were they trying to do another SSH? So they're coming into one place and then using it as a jumping off point. They were using my device as actually an SSH tunnel. So they were proxying right. via my device to try and get to those other devices. Uh, so how can people protect themselves? So everyone can stay secure by making sure they change their passwords from the default before they stick any device online or before they plug it into their network. And the second thing they can do is make sure that when they are choosing a password, they make sure it's a complex and unique password for every service that they use. So it has to be unique on each service. They, Get a password manager. Exactly. So the easiest way to do that is with a password manager. You have to remember one decent, strong, complex password but that password manager will create random passwords for every service that you use. That way, if one guy you log into is running a honeypot and you don't realise it, you won't be giving that person your one and only password. Well, as they say, you catch a lot of flies with honey, but you catch a lot of honeys being fly. Oh, no. Oh, goodness me. Uh, the, the next thing that people should do is they should make sure that they turn off UPnP on their home router so that these devices can't be accessible from outside of their network. We did a really good talk on it two weeks ago in the podcast where Ben explained a situation that he found himself in. And how about businesses? If you're a business or a home user for that matter and have an SSH server, make sure you're using key-based authentication and not just a password because that means you've got to have that sort of logical key in order to get into the device. You actually have to have that on you to be able to get in. Be careful, though, with key-based authentication because that requires you having a private key on your computer. And as I think we've spoken about many times on the podcast before, it's quite frequent for people by mistake that when they upload things, say, to open source projects or whatever, that they accidentally upload a whole directory tree, possibly including their SSH private keys, which then let people jump into their servers. So it's quite it's quite a good idea to have both the password and that private key in order to get into your device as a fail-safe. Yes, and it's funny how many people I've spoken to who don't realise that in the SSH configuration files that it's not either password-based authentication or key-based authentication. You can actually make it do both. So you can have the password prompt and then the key-based authentication. And as you say, that's essentially a form of 2FA, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. There's definitely multiple factors of authentication there, if I can speak properly. And presumably a business should never really have 
permit root login equals yes in its sshd config yeah because that would cut out in your case that would make what is it 5.2 out of 5.4 million login attempts essentially redundant yeah they just fail at the first hurdle yeah yeah another thing that ben suggested a little while ago as well is possibly changing your default port port isn't that right ben yeah, so if you choose a non-standard port, so for example at, at home, I was publishing SSH externally and, and got similar findings to what Matt found, but with with my home network, whereby when I logged in, it, Linux actually tells you when you authenticate to the shell how many attempted logins there were since the previous authentication, and it was up in the 30,000. So what I did was I actually published SSH so I could access my servers externally, um, but I put it on a totally non-standard port, so 30. I'm not going to say what it is, 33,500 and something, let's say. These these attackers, these probes, these scripts are less likely to stumble upon it. Exactly, so that can cut out the bulk of those requests. Um, and the last thing that I'd like to recommend is to use Sophos Antivirus, which is free on your, on your Linux servers to catch any known payloads that are dropped to the device if somebody does manage to get it. Do you want to end on a bee, Jake? No, I just buzz off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Duck, GPS had its own zero day this week, didn't it? It did. We all know that GPS stands for Global Positioning System. It's a system of simultaneous satellites that are spinning around the Earth, put in orbit by the US government, but the service is available for anyone to use for free. It's a great service that tells you where you are. But because it relies on very accurate time between the satellite and Earth, comparing that to find your position, GPS can also be used as a clock. But for technical reasons, the GPS signal only counts the number of weeks up to 1,023, and then it goes back to zero. So every 19 years or so, the GPS clock, when you're converting from GPS to earthly time, suddenly jumps backwards to the 6th of January 1980. And the second time that's happened was this last weekend between the 6th and the 7th of April 2019, at midnight, Universal Coordinated Time, GPS just said, we're back in week zero. And so did anything break? Fortunately, it did not. The good news is that this is a well-defined part of the GPS specification and the protocol. It always has been. So in theory, any GPS device that only gets its information from the satellites and is trying to be a perfectly accurate clock It can no longer tell whether it's 1980, 1999 or 2019 unless it's got some information baked into it. So only a very old device that had never had any firmware updates could really fall for this. And as far as I know, nothing bad happened as a result. So why does such an important system have a limitation like this? The problem with GPS invented in the 1970s is it's not like using cloud services or modern home internet where you have hundreds of megabits per second at your disposal and thousands of gigabytes of storage. The signal from the GPS satellite to Earth comes at 50 bits per second. So everybody wanted to tuck data in there, got a few bits that they could use, and they decided that week number, all they needed was 10 bits. And in 10 bits, you can represent numbers from 0 to 1,023. And that's how much they figured was enough for a weak number, given that the limitation was well-defined. So it's not just an oversight. It's not just that they weren't thinking ahead. They kind of figured 20 years will have to do. And so why can't it be fixed? The good news is that in the what's essentially new GPS, I think it's GPS version 3, the, the satellites that are going up as we speak, those have a different protocol 
uh, for civilian GPS that has 13 bits. So bits are still hard to come by. So that can represent weeks up to a number of about 8,000. And therefore that can has a, a kind of epoch cycle, uh, a life cycle of 150 years. So if you think of a, a GPS device that you're selling today, if the person who's selling it to you can't get a firmware update out to you in the next 150 years, then you probably have other things to worry about, about their attitude to security, <laughs> than whether your date's going to set back in 150 years' time. And so did you stay up? Did you have a late night? Oh, yes. To see whether your Garmin was... Well, I was working anyway, and then at two minutes to one o'clock UK time, because we're at the moment, this time of the year, we're one hour ahead of UTC. At two minutes, I thought, oh, I might as well put my Garmin on, and then I couldn't resist taking a little video of it, and it ticked over with no trouble at all. I survived, and so, to the best of my knowledge, did all the computers in the world that rely on the network time protocol. So as far as I know, nobody got mixed up by this. Everyone heeded the advice of the US government that's been putting out for years. Remember, we had one of these zero days before, back in 1999. So my Garmin survived, and I expect that everybody else's did too. But I did sit up, just to make sure. <laughs> ben, MySpace had a little issue with its server migration project recently, didn't it? Um, yes, so in fact, it wasn't that recent. So in, in February 2018, MySpace actually experienced a significant data loss whereby they managed to lose all photos, videos and audio that was uploaded to the website prior to 2015. Now, that equates to around about 50 million different songs that were lost in the process. The Internet Archive has actually published some retrieved tunes to the, to the amount of around about 490 thousand mp3 files that were actually obtained from an anonymous academic study that was conducted between 2008 and 2010. Uh, the Internet Archive actually, uh, you can you can search for these tracks using, the, they have a platform or, or rather a media player sort of database search engine called Hobbit, uh, which is eventually they're intending on making open source as well. Um, I did actually check to see if the songs from my death metal band that I played drums <laughs> for in my youth managed to be recovered um, and are now hosted on the in the Internet Archives platform. Um, but unfortunately, they fell into the 99% of content that was not recovered. Oh. And that actually appears to have been permanently lost for all eternity. Were you in the time frame that those guys were, le oh, sorry, I nearly said leeching, were downloading lots <laughs> of data for academic research purposes? <laughs> not quite. So it was oh. a tiny bit before then. So it doesn't, that doesn't say anything about the popularity or lack of it of your band? It's no, just precisely. That you weren't in the window when they decided they exactly. wanted to do that. I'm sure research. they were very popular, don't yeah. Yes, I'm sure all our fans are distraught. Mm. Um, uh, but the silver lining is actually that the data loss does seem to have permanently erased all photographic evidence of a of the embarrassing sort of bright blonde mop that I had on top of my head uh, that prevailed throughout my teenage years. Not quite all <laughs> evidence, though. Oh. All the evidence on MySpace. Ah, right, OK. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's other you've got evidence, So you Matt. think other sources may be available. Yeah. I feel like that's a tweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did they lose the files? So MySpace have, have just simply attributed it to a server migration project um, that we can assume went awry. Uh, they've apologised for the inconvenience for anybody that did actually lose some data. I everybody yeah. <laughs> had lost everything. Oh dear. Exactly. That's hardly a little loss, is it? It's not really data loss. You need a whole new word, a whole new vocabulary for something of that scale. Yeah, it's like a data black hole almost, isn't it? It's all just imploded. 
Yeah, so they, they've actually advised those affected by the data loss um, to retain their backup copies, which I'm sure everybody had from their MySpace photos and of videos and what have you. Um, which, But in my case, unfortunately, I didn't have that uh, because um, data backup wasn't actually my largest priority um, when I was about 14 or 15. Aww. It was, you wanted to be the next Lars, didn't you? Megatron rolls, bit of symbol spam going on there. <laughs> That's it, exactly. And yeah. to be fair, the whole idea of even back then of these cloud services is they do all the work for you, right? Even if it's a free service, you're paying with your by providing them your data. A lot of people think I wouldn't get a dog and bark myself, so I wouldn't put my data in the cloud. I don't need to back it up. They do that. Apparently, sometimes they do not. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it really highlights a, a, a sort of core concern or, or the reality, really, that you shouldn't rely solely on cloud storage for your data. Um, putting your data into cloud storage um, is simply the case of putting your data onto someone else's computer. If you're actually paying for a cloud data sort of hosting service, then maybe the hosting provider might offer an SLA or some sort of information about how they ensure resilience across the sort of data that they're storing on your behalf. Regardless, by retaining offline backups of your data, you they could save yourself in the event that the sort of cloud storage goes bye-bye, such as it did with MySpace. Oh, and also make sure that you encrypt the backup data just in case it goes walkabout. I always recommend that people, if they're backing up, say, to a USB device, if you make a deal with a friend of yours that you'll each store a backup device for the other, then if you if you each encrypt them, then you don't have to worry that the other guy might read something by accident or design, and you get to store it technically off-site. So if your house is off-limits because, you know, sadly you have a flood or a fire or you're not allowed to go there because the cops seal off the street because of a gas leak or whatever, then and you urgently need your data, you can just go around to your chum's place and pick it up. And if it's encrypted and they lose it or their house gets burgled, you don't have to worry about what physical security precautions they're taking. Yeah, geo-redundancy, just on a smaller scale, down and- the road. And presumably, you know, you think of a service like MySpace, if they had an SLA that said, hey, you can have all the money back that you paid in fees if we lose the data, then they kind of owe you dollar zero, don't they? Because it wasn't that you paid for it in the first place. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Do you want to have a nice quip at the end? You should have a limerick. A limerick. Yeah, you should definitely do a limerick. If if your data is stuck in the cloud, Mm -hmm. stop, think, and then say aloud, do not delay... Make a backup today. Don't mind. Just be one of the crowd. <gasps> oh, that Can you remember good. all of that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't delay. Make a backup today. Absolutely. Offline backup. Offline. Right, that's about all from us this week. Duck, where can we find you on social media? You can find me at DuckBlog on Twitter and at PDucklin on Instagram. Oh, Matt? You can find me at, at InfosecBody on Twitter and Instagram. Ben? You cannot find me on MySpace. <laughs> oh, sad. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't no. rule that out. You never know. What a challenge. I'm at Anna Brading on Twitter and we are Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Naked Security. Please rate and review our podcast. It helps other people to find us. You can tweet us at Naked Security with suggestions for the podcast or you can email us at tips at sovos.com. And until next time... Stay, stay secure. secure. And swarm wishes. <laughs>
Can't laugh that was Dan. a real laugh. That was a real laugh. No need. It was I hilarious. Think it was I, think that we, I think we were just relieved yeah. that that's the end of the podcast. So technically, it has to be the last joke. Ladies and gentlemen, live on stage, I bring you Eternal Defiance! <laughs> <laughs> Got flashbacks then. <laughs> we won battle with the bands, Did actually, you? in uh, Alton. Alton as in Alton Towers? No, Alton is in Hampshire. There was a lot of death metal going on in Hampshire. It was, uh, it was quite a hub, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's considered the Scandinavia of you, Hampshire. You, 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 yeah. <laughs>